Welcome to Storytelling. This week's guest is a professional speaker, author and resilience coach. His autobiography entitled Don't Lean on Your Excuses is where he shares his story that took him from a wheelchair to world champion and beyond. He explains how he didn't lean on his excuses throughout his journey and the learnings he gained which he now shares to help and empower others. He is passionate about everyone experiencing the happiness and fulfilment of achieving the life that they have imagined and truly deserve. Please welcome Steve Judge. Hello, Steve, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. How are you today? Great. Steve, you grew up with a love for sports and participated in a variety of different sporting activities. Can you share what these were? So I guess when I think about that, I think about as a kid. So I love sports day. So that's a multiple of sports, but running was my main thing. That's in most sports as well, isn't it? So running was what I liked doing. It's what I was good at. And I think as I grew up, I realised I was better at slightly longer distance than the sprints. So we're talking like the mile. But then as I got into my teenage years, I think that extended onto 10K races or events, just fun runs with my family. But again, I liked it and I was good at it. And so I continued with that. And progressed, I guess, and I got competitive. I think that's the thing. I think that's the next move. So still with running. And I say just running, there were lots of sports that I did, whether that was tennis or I did do a little bit of rugby as well at some stage. But when I think about sports in general, I think it's mainly the running. Running was the thing that I got passionate about. I felt a liberation. I felt a sense of freedom. I remember just going for runs out the backfields with my dog, little Jack Russell, just running through the fields as a teenager and just enjoying it. But then obviously, like I said, eventually getting competitive. And when I say that, it's very much about personal bests. It's not comparing myself to other people because as a teenager, there's so many different age groups and different levels. So it's just about whether I could beat my last time. And I I tell you what, Debbie, I used to write down my results in a little book and write down the date and the distance and the miles per hour. And at the end, I'd make a little comment, uh, as in, that was a really good run, pushed it at the end, beat that, Steve. And it was like a laying down a gauntlet to myself. For next time I picked up that book to go out for a run, I'd see that comment of beat that, Steve, and that'd get me going. And I'd say, yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can, or I will. And so it's very much about personal best. And I think that's something that's really got me through my journey, my life, is setting a benchmark against myself, not others, and then just push myself to better that. And then your whole world changed in April 2002. Can you explain what happened? So yeah, 2002, so still fit, healthy, life is going good, got a job, got engaged, driving home from a friend's house, there was water on the roads, and my car skidded on the aquaplane, and I lost control. I couldn't control the car at all, there's no other cars on the road, I wasn't speeding, nothing, I didn't do anything wrong, but... I saw that I was going to crash into a pole at the side of the road. I braced myself and then there was an impact and I I blacked out. And the next thing I know, there's ambulances and fire brigades and police trying to get me out of the car. took them about an hour and a half to cut the car apart. 
And eventually they were able to drag me out along with what was left of my legs. Mercy dashed me in an ambulance to the nearest hospital. And when I got there, very much about survival, giving me morphine, supplying me with blood to keep me alive and looking at the condition of me. And I remember the surgeon coming round to me before I went into the operation. He said, look, we're going to see what we can do. But both of your legs have been horrifically damaged, been through a traumatic incident. We're going to see if we can save your legs, but we may even have to amputate your right leg. And these aren't words that I thought I'd hear that day. With my love of sport and especially running, I was just distraught. And I remember looking into the surgeon's eyes and saying, just please just do the best that you can. And with that, they took me off into the operation theatre to save my legs. But to be honest, Debbie, I found out later that they lied to me that day because it wasn't just my legs that they were trying to save. It was my life. I'd been through a traumatic incident and they really didn't know if I was going to come out of that operating theatre alive or dead. So that's where I was. And the operation lasted about eight and a half hours. I woke up in a hospital bed, staring at the ceiling, and I felt terrible. My whole life had been turned upside down. And eventually the surgeon doing the rounds came over to my bed and he said, how are you feeling? And I was was really groggy. I was in pain. I was feeling very static. And I just said, I feel terrible. He said, okay, Mr. Judge. He says, I understand that. But, you know, the, the lowdown is we've done the best that we can. We did manage to save both of your legs. But I'm afraid with the severity of the injuries that you've sustained, there's a possibility that you may never walk again. And that's where I was. And hearing those words was absolutely shocking to me. When you hear something like that, there's like two ways you can look at it. And for me, I could have just given in and rolled over and just said, okay, I guess I'll never walk again. And that's it. But for me, there was something that was really angry in me, really angry that somebody had the audacity to say something like that to me. And I guess this is the fight, isn't it? And I was just thinking, I'll show you. Because you said you may never walk again. I'll grab onto that, that positivity there that's slightly there. And I will turn that into a good thing. And I say, right, what do I have to do then to make that more of a reality so that I can walk again? And that's where my second part of my life journey started, I'd say. You include a number of diary entries in your book, which displays your motivation to get better. How did these diary entries help you? And you explained that motivation, that drive to want to get better because there was that glimmer of hope. How did you manifest this into that mental drive to keep going? I think the diary entries really started with just a notebook and pen, trying to record how many drugs I had to take and how much physio I had to do. I was very confused and I was just writing it down so that I had a list of what I had to do. And then the next day I'd say, you know, what I did and what I managed to do and what I didn't manage to do. And then day by day, this slowly turned into some kind of a a diary, if you want to call it, or maybe a log. I'm an engineer, so probably just like a a data sheet uh, or something like that. But I slowly started thinking or looking at this diary, let's call it, when I was having a really rough day and thinking that I was getting absolutely nowhere, like weeks into it, still stuck in hospital, I could turn back a few pages and see that I was actually worse off a couple of days ago. And so therefore, that must mean that I've now made progress. I'm now sat up in bed. I'm now eating. I'm now chewing my own food. I'm now burping. I'm now farting. These things that we take for granted, for me, this is now actual progress because a couple of days ago, I couldn't do that. And now I can. And it gave me this insight of, no, well, well, what could I do by next week? Maybe I'll even get out of this bed and get into a wheelchair. Maybe I'll actually breathe some fresh air by getting out the front door of the hospital oh, that's a nice thought. What do I need to do to do that? I need to eat more food. Okay, let's do that. 
So it became a way of, of setting goals, just very, very small goals. Don't forget, I'm still in survival mode at this stage. I still had a lot to go through. And so it was bit by bit, and that really helped me. And so those diary entries that I've put in my autobiography that you're referring to, they're really important to me because at the start, that's all you need just to get you going. You just need to make sure that you're, if you're not happy where you are and you want to get out of that place, then you've got to just move away from that place just bit by bit, step by step, millimeter by millimeter, whatever it takes. And then things will pick up, momentum will pick up. And you give yourself a pat on the back for doing that. As you see yourself progressing forward, you can look back and go, wow, okay, I've moved a little bit. This is good. Let's keep going. And that can be in anything, whether that's, you know, for me, I had to grow my leg back by four inches. That's a different story altogether. So, you know, to extend my leg by a millimeter a day, that was progress. Very frustrating, very impatient. It didn't grow quick enough for me, but I was getting there a millimeter a day. So that's why the, the diaries came in. And I carried on with those diaries for the next, I think it's probably about two or three, three years, I'd say. Um, and they really helped me and they really helped for me to share how I was feeling as well. I did some poetry as well. I say poetry is probably just more words stuck together. But it, for me, it was a way of getting out of my head and into some kind of form of paper. I guess it was therapy. And it was self-induced therapy that just made me feel a little bit better. And it's really nice when I can look back on it, when I was doing my autobiography, to go through that diary that I had then and think how much I progress now as to the situation I'm in. But so, yeah, the diary entries are good for the autobiography, and I'm glad you enjoyed them, Debbie. Steve, you went through many painful operations and spent a lot of time relearning how to walk. Talk us through that experience of building back up that strength and that process of relearning to walk? I guess the first thing was to stand, and that was hard enough. So I've been in a wheelchair. Let's let's move forward. I'm in a wheelchair now. My leg is the right length, but the bone's not there. And to encourage bone to grow, you have to stand on your leg. You have to use your bone to encourage it to grow, even though there's no bone there, if that makes any sense at all. This is what I was told. And I'm very lucky, you know, I said to the surgeon, what do I have to do? He told me, and I did it. I didn't ask too many questions. I think that's sometimes the best way. So I would be there in my wheelchair with a Zimmer frame in front of me. I'd have to heave myself up, stand upright, holding the Zimmer frame, obviously cheating by using my arms to, to put all the weight through in the Zimmer frame, and then slowly releasing the weight through, instead of through my arms, putting it through my legs. And that was painful. That was very much a mind over matter. That was excruciating. As I slowly put the weight through, I could feel the clicking of, I don't know, whether it was bone or gristle or, or whatever, but it was almost like clunking. I've got this metal cage around my leg holding it all together. So maybe that was getting the strain as well. You could hear noises and the pain subjecting, slowly subjecting the pain on, on, on myself. That's a hard thing to do. As human beings, if it's pain, we, we go the other way. You know, We don't inflict pain on ourselves, but I knew that that's what I had to do to progress forward. That's what I had to do to grow my bone. And if I could grow my bone, then I could get the cage off. And if I could get the cage off, then I could start walking again. If I could start walking again, then I could get my life back together again. So I had to go through that pain barrier. That was part of my progress. And to begin with, Debbie, it was just like for, for 10 seconds. I could put weights in my leg for 10 seconds, and then I would sit down on the, the wheelchair. I would be sweating. I'd be panting. I'd be like exhausted. I can remember just being so exhausted for standing for 10 seconds. How, how pathetic is that? But once I'd recovered, maybe after like a couple of minutes, I knew that I had to do it again. And maybe I'd do that three times. 
And that would be my physio session for that day. And I do that three times a day. And that was just to stand up. Again, if we fast forward onto the walking, that brings, when I think about it, scary. The word scary just comes out because feeling very vulnerable, metal cage around your leg, thinking about what if I fall over? How can I stop myself from fall over? Again, subject my leg to the pain. Every time I put my leg down, gritting my teeth as I put the weight through, lifting it over, putting my next leg down, which is still pretty bad. Both of my legs were pretty bad, but one was worse than the other. Doing that, first of all, in the house with the sofa and settee and chairs around so I could grab onto them. Scarily, eventually going outside. Oh, my goodness, that's really, really hard because there's less to grab onto. But eventually progressing on to going down to the local park where there's nothing to hang on to at all. There's literally half a mile until there's a park bench. And that would be my goal, to get to that park bench, to get there, to lower myself carefully onto the park bench, recover, rest, then take a deep breath, and then walk all the way back. And that was progress. And again, you know, I used to be a runner. This was just so frustratingly, impatiently annoying for me that this is as fast as I could go. But that was what I had to do. And that's all I could do bit by bit. And again, this is a massive one of step by step. So that was the progress I had to do. And thankfully, I kept doing it. I kept on seeing the progress that I was making. And that moved me forward. Steve, how did your family support you during this? Because it must have been just as heartbreaking for them as it was for you to see that frustration that you were going through. So my family have always been very supportive. And I think when I think about how it affected them, it does upset me. It's like a trigger for me. I don't really know why, because surely it's all about me and my injuries. And I'm sure they they suffered a lot. Maybe that's why it's a trigger for me, because I know that they suffered seeing me in such pain. It was nothing. It wasn't my fault. It's nobody's fault. It was just an accident that happened. Nobody was to blame. But for some reason, I felt guilty for putting them through what they were seeing, what they were witnessing, how they're having to help me. And that's horrible. And I shouldn't take the blame on myself. But again, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with impatience or anger, as long as you use it. And that's what I did. And that's what I still do today. I think if I'm angry about something, then let's sort that stuff out. Let's get on with it. If I'm impatient about something, let's do it. Let's do it now. And I think that's what drove me forward is seeing the support that my family were giving me feeling guilty about the fact that the support and and wanting to do something about it. My mum was a an hour away. So I'm based in Sheffield. My mum lived over in Doncaster. It would take her an hour to drive over to me and then drive me all the way to the hospital, then wait there while I was in the waiting room. Then I got saw by the surgeon or did physio. Then I come back to the waiting room where my mum was. Then she'd drive me back home. Then at the end of the day, she'd drive all the way home herself. Oh my goodness, I felt so guilty and helpless. I didn't like it. I wanted that independence and that drove me forward. I wanted to get my own car. I wanted to get a car with hand controls, which is what I did. And as soon as I did that, I said, mum, you don't have to come over now. I can drive myself. I'm independent. And it was great. And my mum obviously still came over to see me now and again, but she didn't have to. I think that was the thing. And so now I could drive myself to the hospital. And it was a bigger quest for me to walk from the car park to the physio session on crutches that's a long, long, long way for me. Uh, and then to get or to walk all the way back after the physio session. But I do remember driving home as a celebration. I'd always go through a drive through because I needed energy, you understand. So a nice pig out in the drive through before I got home and then I'd collapse and have a, a really good sleep. But it was really good that I'd use that as a progress, as a positive 
and it meant that I didn't have to depend on my mum so much, but also I felt independent. And that is really important. I think something like an accident or traumatic event like this wipes away your independency. And that's that's horrible. When you have to keep on asking for help constantly over and over again, it's draining. And I didn't want that. So I think that's what drove me as well. So much as I felt guilty for my family helping, in fact, and friends, it drove me to do something so that they didn't have to help me so much. And maybe that's why it's a full circle now that I'm doing as much as I can to give back, whether it's to my family and friends or to other people. Steve, what I really love about your book is that you really set the scene. You start by literally providing a playlist of songs for each chapter. Typical runner. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. But the title as well, Don't Lean on Your Excuses. How did this phrase shape you? Oh, I, you know, I don't know where it came from. I'm sure it came from hospital. I'm not too sure, but it just evolved. I, I guess these things do. And I think don't lean on your excuses. So you've got to openly admit that there's excuses out there everywhere. And we all know what they are. And some of us use them. And some of us even lean on them. And that's what frustrates me. And, and again, frustration, not a bad thing as long as that drives me forward. People lean on their excuses. Now, if you don't want to do something, don't do it. If you do, then get on with it and do it. Don't start putting excuses in your way saying you can't do it because you can't do it because of this and that. I haven't got enough time. I haven't got enough money. Oh, it's raining, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sometimes these things are facts. Okay, I understand that, and you know that's you don't. Everybody's got different situations, but sometimes they are excuses. The only person that can tell you whether they're an excuse or a fact is you. So you've got to be open to the fact. Is it an excuse or is it a fact? So, for example, Debbie, if you wanted to go for a run in the evening and it gets the evening and then it starts raining, some people might say, oh, my goodness, I can't go for a run because it's raining now. Whereas other people say, oh, my goodness, I need to put a coat on because it's raining. I'm still going to go out for that run because that's what they want to do. They want to go for a run. And so they're not leaning on their excuses. They're turning the excuses into a challenge. They're getting a coat. Other people grab that opportunity and lean on it straight away. And that really frustrates me. And I think that my whole point is I've slowly understand that some people operate that like that. That's how their brain thinks. And I want to help them. If there's something to help them with, if there's, they're really struggling to achieve this big goal of theirs and there's lots of barriers, obstacles and excuses in the way, I can help them. And that's one of the reasons why I've written my book. That's why I'm a speaker. That's why I do my workshops to help those people turn those excuses into challenges and move on forward. And and that gives me such joy if I can do that. But it's about them being open to me about what they really want, what they really, really want, and the excuses that are in their way at the, at the moment. Steve, you went on to become a world champion. Can you talk us through your achievements and how that made you feel? Oh, lots of achievements. I mean, we talk about growing my leg and standing and walking. Those are achievements, driving. And then we, we move into, I, I started getting into power triathlon, which is swimming, cycling, and running for disabled athletes. And I saw a goal ahead of me that I could do this and I could achieve and I could complete the power triathlon and then I could represent Great Britain. And then I saw more goals and the road opened up that I could see these goals and I could work towards them. So setting my goal to become European champion, setting my goal to become world champion in 2011 really drove me forward and push myself. But these weren't easy times. I was working full time now in health and safety. I had a family with two kids. And now I'm competing as an elite athlete for Great Britain in swimming, cycling and running. It was hard. It was draining. 
Do you know, somebody asked me the other day, they said, do you enjoy the journey or endure the journey, you know, with life? And I always think back to my rehabilitation times, and I definitely didn't enjoy those that I had to endure. As an elite athlete, you know, did I enjoy or endure? I enjoyed parts of it, but there were big parts of it where I endured it. Getting up at half five in the morning and diving into a cold pool to go swimming before work is not great fun. Um, What's good is feeling the buzz when you get out of the pool, when you finish the run, when you finish the bike ride and you know how many miles you've done, when you're feeling fit and healthy, that's what the, the buzz is. That's the enjoyment part. And I think crossing the finish line, punching the air in triumph, after all the time and effort and the hard work and the dedication and commitment and the nutrition and the everything that you've done to get to that point, to cross that finish line, to grab that gold medal, you so relish and you enjoy that. But you also felt, I felt, a sense of relief. As in like, oh my goodness, it's over. You know, all that training has, has paid off. It's, it's, it's worked. And it's a massive relief and enjoyment all mixed into one. Uh, but, you know, holding the gold medal, standing on the podium, big smile on my face. It's just amazing. It's just, you know, one of the best feelings ever. But then you've also got this thought of you know, what's next. I know you're doing the celebration thing, but you're also thinking, so what do we do next? And, you know, I did set a few other goals, became world champion two times running, silver medal on the third one, five times British champion, one times European champion. So lots of achievements that I've, I've done. But I think eventually it got to the point where I wanted to, to move on with my life. There's so much to do in life that I didn't just want to do, you know, power triathlon. Like I said before, I, I wanted to give back when I help people. And I had to work out how I was going to do that in the best way so that other people could achieve in whatever they want to do. And I'm not saying I, I help people to become world champions, but achieving their life, whether that's academics, health, wealth, environment, love life, whatever. All of these I see are goals and I know how to achieve goals. And so that's what I do now. Steve, what advice would you give to those who experience a setback in life? Setbacks, there's always going to be setbacks. Some are big and some are small. Acceptance, but before you get to acceptance, I shouldn't have just jumped into acceptance. Accept the situation. You can't just do that. Of course you can't. First of all, you're probably going to a denial, as in surely this isn't happening to me. And then you realise it is happening to you. You've got to accept the denial phase. You've got to accept the next phase, which is anger. You will be angry about what's happening to you. You you set back. I've had it and I've got to deal with it as in what can you do to get rid of that anger? Is it sports? Is it some exercise? Is it gardening? Is it screaming? Is it a pillow fight? I don't know. But do something that, that gets rid of the anger openly. The next bit is sharing. You've really got to share with somebody, somebody that you trust, like a counselor or a friend or family Or if you feel uncomfortable doing that, share it with yourself, as in write it out, like I used to do, write in a diary, draw a picture, do some poetry, get it out of your head, share what you're feeling and get it out. Now, after that, you will enter the phase of of being in rock bottom. And that could be sulking, it could be even depression, and you will feel terrible. Accept that situation and ask yourself how long you're going to stay in that situation, because the next bit after that is acceptance, accepting where you are, accepting the the place that you are in. And once you accept the situation, then you can start doing something about it. That's the benchmark. I don't want to be here. What do I have to do? Let's move forward. You start taking action. You get a serotonin release that makes you feel good. Dopamine release as well, which makes you feel good. And that will help you to move forward. And eventually, as you move forward, you use your resilience. This is all about the wave of resilience, which I I talk about and, and do workshops on. You will actually move to a higher plane. And that higher plane will be higher than where you started. So what I'm saying here is, by having a setback in your life 
or something that bad that happens to you, if you go through the wave of resilience, you'll end up at a higher place, meaning that setbacks and, you know, falling, failing, they can be a good thing as long as you control it in the right way. So don't give out in, in, in a bad way. Just keep going through the wave, accept where you're going and you'll, you'll get to a higher place. Steve, thank you so much for sharing your extraordinary story. And thank you for being a guest on this podcast. No problem at all, Debbie. It's been a joy. If you would like further details about Steve, then please follow the links in the show notes.